0: Listening to the Dr. Claude Kirchner Show. My name is Dr. Claude Kirchner, and we are here to serve organizational leaders and agile teams who strive for excellence and differentiation. I hope you enjoy the content. If you have any questions or would like some additional resources, please visit our website at www.archconsults.com. Enjoy. watched sort of a scary movie last night called Bird box with sandra Bullock. The, the plot is that there's this mysterious creature out there that's getting people to commit harm to themselves and there is a ton of ambiguity around what in the heck is this thing and how do we avoid it and in order to get rid of the ambiguity they were very observant of what's happening around them, the the different symptoms the they listen to the news they were they were on a fact gathering mission think about the information gathering process that you went through when COVID first became a thing. You were highly attuned and paying attention to information at a different level than you would if you were just walking through a program day. So I'm trying to lay out the example of that. As managers, there are times where we really have to hone in and say, okay, we have to become a subject matter expert on this before we make a decision. But also as managers, we have a time constraint and we also have biases that when we go to make these decisions, even if we have all this information, it could be the wrong decision. It looks tricky. Making decisions, moving forward, making mistakes, getting up, failing, learning from mistakes, making better decisions in the future. This is how we learn and grow. This is how we become better managers and better leaders. The decisions we make in our lives will determine the future of our life. It will determine the outcome of who we are, of our habits, of our ability to put ourselves in the right places. And making better decisions is a good thing, and having fewer regrets comes from making better decisions. In the world of management, making decisions is something we do every single day. And for some people, when we make personal decisions, or we'll just say from a personal level, when we make decisions, they impact ourselves, our family, maybe our friends. It's kind of limited as to some of our personal decisions. If you make a really bad personal decision, get in the car while you're drinking, and you hit somebody, and I accidentally heard that, and that's a big deal, but I'm thinking just all in all of what I ate this morning does not impact you guys very much. But in business and in management and in leadership, we make decisions that impact people every single day. Where we decide to open up our location, how many people we decide to hire, who we decide to hire. When we look at the budget, how we decide to go about that process of making decisions on allocating resources within our company as a manager, obviously, if you put $10,000 over here, you're not doing the other project over here, that's $10,000, and that could potentially impact a department, a store. So decisions are real in management. And the better we can get at understanding, number one, that they're important, that there is a decision to make, and getting used to the process that we go through to make good decisions. How do we go about that? How do we work with other people? How do we build coalitions around an idea that we have that we want to execute on? should we make a decision? Should we not make the decision? We're going to talk about that today. So I can think back and, you know if I share, it it would be probably too personal about some decisions I really wish that I hadn't made. And I wish that I, I had the skills to make better decisions because, you know there's there was a lot of pain from certain decisions. professionally and personally, whatever that looks like. and speaking mostly to to professional, what would I have done now that I know what I know now about decision making? And then the other question is, Am I actually going to apply those things, or am I too lazy? Just because I know that I should probably do this, am I doing it effectively? So just to get started, who here has made a bad decision? And is there regret, or are there things maybe you could have done better to make a better decision? Okay, so when you frame it like that, about the bad decisions that we made because we've all made them, and then you look back and say, man, I would have done things differently. And then you look at this question, what is the process you use to make important decisions? it really kind of begs the question of what would you have done differently? If you went through the process again, what would you have done from the very beginning? Just let's walk through the process of decision-making. When is a decision necessary to be made? When you have a choice between alternatives. Okay, so let's start off with saying you, you have been presented with an alternative, and then you look at the pros and cons of the different choices of those alternatives. But would it be fair to say that it's important to recognize that we have a decision to make. Do you think that sometimes people even recognize the fact that there's a decision to make? If there's a decision to make and you kind of know there's a decision to make, what is the reluctance with making a decision? Fear, consequences. So when there's two alternatives, there's also sort of a third alternative, which would be do nothing. There's a, a deep-rooted psychological factor to making decisions and at least being aware of it, putting ourselves in this mindset of making an important decision. What would that look like? And just the fact that we know that we have a decision, we know that we need to evaluate it, and that we acknowledge some fear or reluctance to make the decision is good. It's great, actually. Okay, so now that you've seen that decision, you've gone through some pros and cons, you've acknowledged the fear and consequences, what do you then do? Okay, so choose. Do we ever have full certainty as to which path is the right path? How do we get as close as possible to making the right decision? When you say you examine the decision, what does that mean? The risk, risk of what? If you're going to see if something is risky or not risky, what would you need to do in order to find out whether or not it's risky or not risky? So gather information, look at available information that you might have in order to make a good decision. So think about that and think about all the decisions we make throughout the days, even the important ones. We all acknowledge that gathering information and being able to evaluate that information and evaluating the risk of different alternatives is a good thing. Do we always do that? Not always. But we know that this process, we we know the process. Why don't we go through the process all the time? The not answer the question is just something to think about. There could be emotions, lack of time, just sort of suffice with whatever we default to something that's easier, or we just choose not to make the decision. Tell me then, idealistically, somebody walk me through that whole process. We have a decision to make, we acknowledge it, and then what? It's an important decision. Think about it. Pros and cons. Yeah. Risks associated with, how about we ask a friend? How about we solicit feedback? How about we look to people who have made similar decisions and say, what did you do? Get opinions. Yeah, and idealistically, it's someone that you respect and look up to. And if yeah. they're in a position, because they've made certain decisions in their life, that you, you think that they have... Wisdom to offer with their decision-making ability. That's hard to find sometimes, and it's also hard to ask. Maybe we think it's a binary decision where we're choosing this path or this path, but maybe there could be a third option in addition to not doing anything. And it kind of ties in with goal setting. And when we think about goal setting, obviously, then we have to make decisions as to whether we're going to pursue those goals, how we're going to pursue those goals, what resources we're going to allocate to them. And I think a big part of today is understanding ourselves and our biases. Biases is sort of a buzzword nowadays with somewhat of a polarized social fabric that we live in is is why are you biasing me or, you know, be aware of your biases when you come into this conversation. So what is a bias and how does that impact our decision making? So economics is the process of decision making. It's It's really why do people make certain decisions that they make? What we want to do as business people is we want to make rational decisions. There's just a quick paradigm I'll get you to think about before you put this up there that you'll probably see. As you see this thing called fear, this is the worst way to make a decision. It's the worst. Out of fear is never a good way to start a decision. So the first way, the most rational way to make decisions is based on facts. And this is just to depict an example of what some people do, which is understandable. Do we always have all the facts? No. That's called ambiguity. And ambiguity is, is one of the, it's a crippling force in a lot of managers' days because they don't have all the information they need in order to make decisions. So then we're based on faith. If we don't have all the facts, and we have to put some faith in. So if we had to pick one of these, if we had all the facts, that's how we're making decisions, based on facts. Faith, making decisions based on faith, some people do it, it's okay. Prayer, meditation, it's certainly a good way to reflect and understand what, you know, where am I being called to? Or what am I being called to do? But really don't have facts. You can't predict the future. With artificial intelligence and data science nowadays, there's statistical probability of what could happen next. So when we do have all this data, we gather the data and we analyze the data, we do have a model for what could happen in the future. And that's, that's going to be a big deal for every single person stepping into management knowing that the access to facts, if done well using data, we have more of it. So making decisions theoretically should be easier. So that's the best way. Faith is the second best way. Making decisions based on fear is not, it's not a, a rational model of decision making. And we'll talk about some of the ways why. When you watch this, you will see some people, especially Howie and the people that run the show, and there's a role in this called the banker. The banker makes the decisions on facts, probability. The contestants on the show are making decisions based on fear and emotion fake because they don't have access to all the information the banker has. Yeah. So the concept of the game is you take a case in the beginning, pick a case, hopefully you have the case that has million dollars in it. You want your case that you pick to have a lot of money. So the more that is taken off the board, the banker the probability of what you having in here, and he explained it is, is is higher. Meaning if you put five cents, ten cents, twenty cents, ten dollars, fifteen dollars, a hundred dollars you pick them all and they, you pick them and they're not in your case, the chances of your case having more money is higher. What is that called? It's called probability. You saw people take risks. Why? Is it greed? It could be when they admit, I'm greedy. They make a decision. They choose this path over this path. And one path is more risky than the other. How do we know that it's more risky than the other? It's a game of probability. That's it. And there are however many cases. And the probability of you having a certain number here, it changes every single time you make a decision. So it's a microcosm of decisions we make on a regular basis in all regards. And there's program decisions and non-program decisions that we're gonna get into. But who has an upper hand in that game? A banker. Why does the banker have the upper hand in that game? He knows the chances. Why does he know the chances? He's sitting there with the algorithm. He's got a spreadsheet a model. That's showing him Every single time, he already has mapped out all of the different ways that this game could go. Every single time a decision's made, the probability changes. It goes up here or it goes down. And he knows what he's willing to offer, and likely it's just below what the probability is that, meaning he makes an offer that is less than. The banker will always, in this game, will always give you a less than probability. So for those who take the bank offer, It's really just them not wanting to carry on with the risk that's associated with not having as much money. Most of the time, I think from a probability perspective, it's always better to continue on from a probability perspective. If you can tell there was emotion thrown into that decision-making process, there was fear thrown into that decision-making process. They dramatized the decision-making process. As rational managers that are going to understand some of these Factors that are at play with decision making, we're going to be better at combating some of those things and making wise decisions. So there's different types of decisions, and it's important that we kind of classify them into different types. One is a program decision, and one is a non program decision. If you think about a program decision, when I got into my car, I, I think I, I knew intuitively what I needed to do in order to back my car out and bring it out of the garage and drive here tonight. Those are programmed. Every single one of them is a decision. Do I sit? Do I stand? Do I put my hands like this? Do I put my hands like this? Do I have a piece of gum? Do I not have a piece of gum while I'm driving? These are just programmed, routine decisions. Programmed At work, what would these programmed decisions be? Give me some examples. Opening and closing, what did you say? Clocking in. Perfect example. Picking up the phone when it rings. Responding to an email. Saying hello to some of the people that you work with. Having lunch. It's It's easier for us throughout the day to have programmed decisions. It makes this life easier. If you walk through a day where you just had these program decisions, your day is probably a little bit less challenging. But where we're gonna focus on tonight and what's most important for us is understanding what the non-program decisions are. What are they? How do we get through them? And why are they different than program decisions? So made in response to situations that are unique, are poorly defined and largely unstructured and have important consequences for the organization. Hence, what is the process you use to make important decisions. I didn't ask you what's the process you use to decide whether or not you brush your teeth at night. I didn't ask you, tell me the process you use when you know choosing whether or not to breathe or to eat breakfast or whatever it may have been, the easy decisions that you make. We're here to talk about the managerial decisions that can have an impact on other people's lives and why it's important that we get good at figuring these things out, naming them and figuring them out. The biggest things that we want to understand decision-making is access the facts because it gives us certainty. It allows us to calculate risk, gets rid of the probability of making the wrong decision, hence the banker. You know, understanding certainty, certainty is higher when we have more facts. Risk is lower when we have more facts. I mean, risk is always going to be inherent in everything we do, but if we have more information, we can mitigate those risks and make wise decisions. Uncertainty, is the opposite of those two things. Goals are known, but information about alternatives and future events is incomplete. So ambiguity is not good. And but So it's easy, the words ambiguity, that's great, cool. Ambiguity, Claude, thank you so much. The board, it says ambiguity. But I really want you to think about these things, about ambiguity. And, and I'll try to make it relevant in your personal lives. When, when you find a, on a dating app, you see a, a man or a woman that you're thinking about dating and and you see a profile of them, you have facts, right? There's a lot of ambiguity associated with actually who they are and how they're gonna act. Wow, this profile looks great. You call them up, you go on a date. What happens? It's totally different. They come looking all different. And, or, you know, they didn't in the picture, they only showed this part of their body and this part of the body, you have no idea. When they have a conversation with you, you see their interests and hobbies. For whatever reason, they can't look you in the eye. They don't have confidence. There's a slew of ambiguity. So now let's say you go on a date with them and it was, it was a good date, whatever. You go on a second date. They seem to be consistent with their profile. Now you've gone on two dates. You've gathered information that sort of clarified your original thought process. So the ambiguity is less. You have less ambiguity the more ambiguity. information you have, the more routinistic, the more programmed you see this event occurring. So ambiguity is something that we want to get rid of as much as possible as managers. In order to get rid of ambiguity, we have to be experienced. We have to try to figure out how, how do we get information. We have to go and meet people. Before you hire somebody, you know I, I love the fact that we can have these digital technology tools to do Zoom and whatnot. But I hope that if you're going on interviews, or even if you're gonna go look at schools or universities, that you go there physically and you say hello. Because if you just did your interview process on Zoom or you chose a university or a job without experiencing the work environment, there's a lot of ambiguity there. And that decision is an important decision. And they they nickname them wicked decision problems, highly ambiguous situations involving conflict over goals and decision alternatives, rapidly changing circumstances, fuzzy information, unclear links among decision elements, and the inability to evaluate whether a proposed solution will work. I watched sort of a scary movie last night called Bird Box with Sandra Bullock. Yeah. Great movie. I, I was I saw the previews. And I didn't want to watch it because I have daughters and my wife. You know we're we're like this is not the kind of movie we want to watch. But we ran out of options, so we put on Bird Box. The the plot is that there's this mysterious creature out there that's getting people to commit harm to themselves, and there is a ton of ambiguity around what in the heck is this thing and how do we avoid it, and in order to get rid of the ambiguity, they were very observant of what's happening around them. The, the different symptoms, The they listened to the news, they were, they were on a fact gathering mission. Think about the information gathering process that you went through when COVID first became a thing. You were highly attuned and paying attention to information at a different level than you would if you were just walking through a program day. So I'm trying to lay out the example of that. As managers, there are times where we really have to hone in and say, okay, We have to become a subject matter expert on this before we make a decision. But also, as managers, we have a time constraint. And we also have biases that when we go to make these decisions, even if we have all this information, it could be the wrong decision. It looks tricky. (laughs) And I really hope that you become better decision makers. But what I don't hope is that you are stunned or in some way frozen to not making decisions. Because that's one of the worst things that you can do is is just not make a decision, or be frozen and not know which path to go because of an overwhelming sense of information. Making decisions, moving forward, making mistakes, getting up, failing, learning from mistakes, making better decisions in the future. This is how we learn and grow. This is how we become better managers and better leaders. So I'll talk about these three different models that we use, the classical model, administrative model, and political model, just so you can see in your mind and maybe you know other people, of how they go about making some of these decisions. So in the classical model, it's strictly based on rational economic assumptions. It's the banker. The manager believes how a decision makers should make a decision. So in the classical model, it's, what do you mean? It's the facts. I decided to go to Japan because it was the cheapest. You know, my wife, it's on her top 10 list or whatever it is. And it has nothing to do with whether or not they want to go to Japan or if there's any emotion behind it or if they solicited other people's opinions, they just decided it based on facts. Does anybody know that kind of decision maker? Classical model, not a lot of emotion, fact-based decision maker. Notice some more in the future. So the assumptions they make, decision maker operates to accomplish known goals, problems are defined, decision maker strives for certainty and gathers information, results are calculated, criteria for evaluation of alternatives are known, selects alternatives that maximize economic return. Very much like the banker. So the administrative model is goals are often vague and conflicting at times. Use a rational decision-making process within the limits of human and environmental factors. Yes, I want to make the right decision statistically. And for those of you who watch Bird Box once again, there was an opportunity where they went to a grocery store. And they could have stayed in the grocery store. And the guy even made the argument in the movie. He said there's no, there's no rational, economic, or no reason why we should leave. The probability says our chances of survival here are way greater. And then Sandra Bullock steps in with the administrative model and says, wait a minute. Yes, that rationality may make sense, but the right thing to do would be to to leave and go back with the food to the people that we promised. She made sort of an irrational decision based on her desire to care for other people. Maybe you know some people who do this too. Maybe you know people who, yeah, the fact is that I can go to this university and I can afford it, and it would be great, but I prefer to be closer to my parents. The fact is that I could live in Florida, but I have two sisters with learning disabilities in Pennsylvania, so I'm thinking about moving up to Pennsylvania. So rationally, it would make sense for me to stay here. But from a human and environmental factor, I'm going to choose something that may not be rational to certain people. And do you see the contrast between classical and administrative? It's almost frustrating when people are strictly focused with classical, but in, in reality, from an economic perspective, from a financial perspective, you want your accountants, you want your, your financial advisors, you want them to act rationally. And within the business environment, the classical model, you want people to make decisions based on economic outcomes because you like Jenny, but Jenny makes too much money and isn't working. It's probably best we, we let Jenny go. Why do we have to talk about it anymore? Let's just go ahead and make this decision. Not an easy decision to make, but needed to be made. What's bounded rationality? It it also means that how can I possibly interpret all of the information, the pros and cons? How can I interpret every little thing that could go right or go wrong with this decision? How much time should I spend on the pros and cons? What do you think? Let's, Let's bring a decision into this that we're in a management position, and we need to choose whether or not we choose supplier A or supplier B. And supplier B is a little bit cheaper, but supplier A has a better reputation. Well, just think about it. I won't get into the details. How much time should we spend on that? Two days, one day, two hours, 10 minutes, whether we choose supplier A or supplier B. And then the other question is, do we solicit other people's opinion or do we make the decision ourselves? The question is how much time should we spend on it? One day, you have the proposals, you know the price, we need product don't we why are we spending so much time on this decision i agree i mean you could probably spend a week on this decision but the the purpose of bounded rationality is to understand that what when is it enough when do we then decide that we should make this decision and move on with our lives and the reality is we don't really know what that line is some people draw it in some places some people draw it in others. we could randomly guess and make the greatest decision ever and spend 10 seconds on it and not have to waste another five days on this menial decision. Satisficing is choosing the first solution that satisfies minimal decision criteria. So this is an interesting one, too. So bounded rationality says there's only so much information that we can process for this decision. People have limits or boundaries on how rational they can be. That's number one. And then satisficing is just saying, okay, well, it's just, this is too much. I'm just going to choose this path because I'm sick of talking about it. That's satisficing, and that could be a bad thing as well. So those are two things to take into consideration when people make decisions. What are assumptions? I assume that um, it's puddling outside. But based on my experience, right in Florida, there's places that have puddles. I'm assuming that you all have umbrellas tonight. It's a bad assumption, but some people could make that assumption. What do you mean? Everyone doesn't carry umbrellas. So they don't really know all the facts that they make assumptions. And sometimes assumptions are needed in management. You'll hear some finance people or accounting people say, so don't. Don't make assumptions because you'll make an ass out of you and me. Have you ever heard that before? I'll show you. Assume. So it's ass out of you and me. So don't assume. You know, have the facts. But, again, we just talked about bounded rationality and satisfying that this is ideal that we don't make assumptions. But, in reality, we're always assuming certain things. We don't always have all the facts at our disposal. We're very much... Settling for satisfying managers' searches for alternatives are limited. Rational procedures are not always used. Simplistic view of problems. So great, great bullet points. Managers are often unaware of problems or opportunities. We don't know what we don't know. Goals are often vague and conflicting. Intuition. Great story. There's a story in a book about intuition and decision making. And some may think that there's something called a sixth sense. And really, it's not, say, a sixth sense scientifically, but what it is is I'm so used to looking at the room with people either paying attention or not paying attention. I can tell whether or not my points are getting through. I have intuition. I can, I can see based on experience. I can feel it. I know whether or not the communication is landing because I have intuition. And that only comes from experience. So there's a race car driver, his driver's car, And he's going 180 miles per hour. These race cars go fast. NASCAR. And he's doing a race, doing a race. He's he's been racing cars for 15 years. And he, in a split-second decision, based on he noticed something in the crowd that he saw that typically when he would would go around the turn, the crowd would be looking at him because he's about to go around this turn. And everybody's sort of watching. Okay, there he goes. But for whatever reason, the entire crowd instead of looking at him, was already looking in front of him. And he noticed that there was like a, a stillness to the presence in the crowd. And immediately when he sensed that, he, he tapped his brakes. And as soon as he went around this corner, there was a massive accident right in front of him that had just happened. And because he started tapping his brakes, as opposed to hitting the gas come around the corner, he, he avoided the accident. So that story, if that story can be implanted in your head, the intuition of something... I've gone through this last one. I see that the people, something's not right. It happens in split seconds. So when you practice a craft or a skill or a gift, or if you think about paratroopers when, the, when they go overseas, they make you jump out of planes all the time in the armed forces. If you're in the armed forces, you're jumping out of planes. <laughs> if you're in the Navy, Marines, it doesn't matter. You're jumping out of planes. You do it over and over again because you never know when you could be in a situation where you're jumping out of a plane in a war. So they want you to be completely comfortable with it. You have intuition, knowing that I can put this thing on. I have skill set. I'm going to jump out. Something goes wrong. My one chord, no problem. I got a second chord. You just go through the mechanisms so many times, and you build intuition. That's cool, isn't it? So, <laughs> and as managers, we want to develop that. Who can give me an example in management and leadership on a, on an everyday basis where intuition would probably come in handy when it comes to making decisions? any family members that are police officers or firefighters ambulance workers do you um do they tell you stories about their days or do you do you know about what they do every day police officer so practice this next time you go to the mall and if you're in places with lots of people see if you could notice behaviors of certain individuals that seem skeptical or not normal and have some intuition to derive some conclusions based on their behaviors This is what police officers, firefighters, sometimes lawyers, judges, this is what they do every single day. Very limited amount of information. They have to use their intuition and their rationality in a sense to know and calculate probabilities in your head. Think about when a police officer pulls you over. From the very beginning, that police officer, the moment he sees your car, how you're driving on the road, what lane you're in, the color of your car, the condition of your car, you know, when he first sees you, what you're doing, if you think you're going to hide something from a police officer after he's already pulled you over, you're, you're wrong. <laughs> he probably already consents. So as he's getting out of his car, he's still fixated on watching the person he pulls over. His intuition, his guard is on high. He's making sure that everything plays out. If you see him approach the car. It's a very calculated approach and likely a hand on the weapon as they approach the car to see what's happening. And as they approach the car, they see that it's a, a pregnant woman in her 40s or, say, 30s. And um, she's wearing spectacles and she's listening to contemporary Christian music. This guard's probably going to go down a little bit. I mean, just because his intuition saying, I don't, I don't think she's going to have a gun and shoot me. You know what I mean? It's probably less likely versus it's a group of, you know, 18 year old mixed, diverse uh, college students. No, we won't say. Co- well, we'll say college students that um, their music and they have bass coming out of the back of their car. And as the guy's pulling up to the car, he smells some some funky something going on, whether it's alcohol or something else. And, and the windows are down, and it's you know 25 degrees outside. <laughs> and he's like, I'm pretty sure something's not right here. I should investigate a little bit further. And these are things that managers do as well. So when you walk into the office as a manager, when you go into a meeting as a manager, noticing these types of things of how people are behaving, maybe how their day's going. If you, if you notice that somebody's a little bit nervous when they're speaking, maybe it's not a good time for them to make that important decision. Maybe you should try to help them out. If, you, if you're on a hiring team and you're trying to hire uh, people to come onto your team, there's probably a good chance that intuition would, would be helpful for you. Seeing how they dress, observing some of their mannerisms, if they don't stand up when they shake someone's hand and they're just shaking hands like this, I can go on and on with having these, this level of intuition of why it's really important in management. Combining intuition with analytical thought, that's what we, we talked about the police officer. I'm not just, oh, something might be wrong. No, I've experienced this in my training. I've experienced this before. If the windows are down and I smell that, there's a really high probability that something's happening inside that vehicle that shouldn't be happening. It, that's called... um. Quasi rationality, that's probably the best way to do it. You have intuition and rationality going at the same time. So now the political model, and this is a cool thing to understand. We are, sorry, we're we're in a work environment. And us here at this organization, we'd really like to have a 45 minute lunch. And that's important for us, but management and some of the people, our supervisors think 30 minutes is, is plenty good. So it would behoove us to have a group of people who agreed with us in our campaign. You can't decide, maybe as a a field service supervisor, sorry, as a field service person, that we're gonna change lunch from 30 minutes to 45 minutes. That's not within your political power, right? But what if you built a coalition around the concept of helping make that decision? What would that look like in an organization? If you think about in freshman year and you're running for homecoming queen, or something like that, or school president, or whatever that may be, you wanna build a, a group of people that will support you in your endeavor. So coach, I worked out in the prison this past weekend. I had a, there was a workout, and I teach in the prison. And there were, it was a very interesting experience, for sure. It was in the prison yard. <laughs> I mean, this is like a stereotypical movie, prison yard. These guys are like, you know. <laughs> I'm walking in, I'm like, all right. But I felt, say, protected or I felt more safe because we had 75 inmates working with us. Fifteen of them were my students. And I had been in this prison on multiple occasions. So God forbid something was to go wrong. I had a group of people that, you know, they wouldn't let anything happen to me. We were vastly outnumbered because there was five guards and 200 inmates on the yard. It's not really an idealistic place that most people would choose to be. But I felt content because I had people that were a part of my group and we were doing it together. So that's sort of, you know, in essence, sort of a coalition. But it's it's what we do naturally. We live in community. We want to be protected, building, building people who agree with the decisions that we want to make and and formulating these coalitions is a, a big takeaway from tonight. Because sometimes there will be times in class and remember, we're the political model that we have to use a political approach to getting something done. We can't just do it because we're strong, we we just wanna do it, and we know that it's right, and and every financial forecast that we we show them is correct, but for whatever reason, we still say no. The political model, the assumptions are organizations are made up of groups with diverse interests, goals, and values. If you agree with that, the political model is somewhat of your framework. Information is ambiguous and incomplete. Managers do not have time, resources, or mental capacity to identify all dimensions of processes or process all information regarding a problem. Decisions are the result of bargaining and discussion among coalition members. Here are the differences between the three different decision-making models. Everybody doesn't make decisions the same way you do. There's a classical model, administrative model, and political model. Is what social science has determined that people can use one of these models more prevalently than others. And the contingency model of leadership says that the best and most successful leaders are ones that, that mold their style based on the situation. As a manager, as a sister, as a brother, as a, as a cousin to a young kid, I'm not interested in building a coalition to tell my daughters to go into the bathtub. I'm going to take my daughter. I'm going to pick her up and I'm going to toss her in the bathtub. There's, no, there's not, going to be a lot of, not going to be a lot of debate here. You're going into the tub. And that's the classical model of decision making. The point is that I can take a more political approach to decision making when I'm dealing with adults that have needs, that have obstacles, whatever that looks like. And it probably wouldn't be a good idea for me to pick you guys up and throw you in the bathtub. Like, that doesn't make sense. That we have to use our discernment and our emotional intelligence in the way in which we go about making some of these decisions and taking other people's opinions into consideration. What is the process you use to make important decisions? There's the answer. I wish I did more of, but hopefully, this could be in your mind somehow when we think about the process of making decisions. Number one, recognition of decision requirement. Oh, I got a decision to make. A ton of different decisions we make all the time. Again, if it's a non programmed decision, we should go through this process, step by step. If it's a program decision, come on, I'm not gonna go through this process when I choose as to whether or not I'm getting a hamburger or a cheeseburger at the restaurant. Hold on, waitress, Turn on my wheel. <laughs> Let me walk through the options here. Who, who has a friend or a family member that does that when they order a restaurant? Can you come back? No, we're ready. I'm ready to make a decision on what I want to eat. They may not be ready. So after we know that there's a decision, diagnosis and analysis of causes. What, what cause, typically decisions are based in management, Right? There's there's a problem that makes you need to make a decision. We are short on materials for our next job. Why are we short on materials? Why didn't somebody order? Okay, now we need to decide, do we order materials today, do we order materials tomorrow? So a lot of times this, this concept of, we'll sit on this just for a second, diagnosis of a problem, this is a whole subject matter in management to begin with because sometimes we think of a problem and we think of, we're thinking of a symptom of a problem. We're not thinking of the actual problem. If you look at an iceberg and you picture the tip of the iceberg, that's a symptom. So if I walk into the doctor's office and I say, I am here because I have a headache. Doctor, please just give me some ibuprofen or some uh, hardcore pain pills just for my headache. What is the doctor going to go about doing? The headache is a symptom of, a, of, of likely a different kind of problem in my body. Maybe I have a, an infection. Maybe I have a bacterial infection. Or maybe I didn't drink enough water. Maybe there's some other root cause to my headache that the doctor is gonna wanna know. And doctors are smart enough to know that nasal drip, headaches, fevers are a symptom of an underlying problem. The same thing can be applied to business. If we, for whatever reason in business, notice a trend of sales going down, the problem isn't, oh, we need to sell more. The problem could be something very different. So when we attack that as managers and we try to diagnose problems, we have to be careful to delineate symptoms from problems. It's a big takeaway when it comes to making the right decisions. Because if you, if you the doctor gave me the pain pills, but I wasn't drinking enough water and I, I, I went back two days later with the same headache, it's a useless process. He didn't solve the problem. I didn't solve the problem either because that's still have a So development of alternatives means, okay, now that we've diagnosed the problems, there's a couple different ways that we can make decisions in order to attack the problem, selection of desired alternatives. So now we have to choose. <laughs> so once we know that there's a problem, that there's a decision, now we have some pros and cons. We evaluate the decision, and then we have to choose. If we don't choose, whatever. After we choose selection of desired alternative. Then we have implementa- implementation of chosen on So then we have to, once we make the decision, then we have to do it. Go and drink more water. We have to do something about whatever problem that we had. That's important. After we do it, there's a great quote that I'll always remember because it made an impact on me by Rich Wilkerson He said, everything worth doing is worth the valuable. Everything we do that we put resources into as managers and leaders, once it's done, we should get together as a team and say, how did it go? Did we make the right decision? Should we have had that event? Should we do it again next year? What could we have done better? So you evaluate the decision that you made and you provide feedback. You tell each other, hey, I think you did great there, but not sure if that's exactly the angle you want to go to. Maybe you could have done it better this way. Or just, you did it great. Keep going and, and move forward. Good decision. Does this help you at all? That there is a process to decision making? Well, when I'm tired and it's the end of the day, and I'm hungry and i i've been let's just say i've been in a you know debate all day there was a a symposium and you know I, i led a discussion and i had to use all my brain cells is it the right time to make a decision at the end of the day about whether or not i'm going to you know shift my funds to a different account it's not it's not a good time making important decisions space for clarity and white noise meaning uh, white space having some you know there's always that saying when before you send that email just don't send it like send it tomorrow and a lot of times in management at at night even when people send emails they say don't send emails past certain amount of time at night because you're you're in your hour of the rat they call it it's where like you should be sleeping (laughs) the sun is down and you're, you're ruminating over this thing that happened today, it's really no big deal if you wake up the next day, your mercies are new every morning, you're fresh, you're, you're like, oh, man, I'm so happy I didn't make that phone call or send that text message. That's a huge point, point. and thank you for, for saying that because if we could, as managers, realize that clarity of thought, having a clear mind before making decisions is a good thing, we, we could make better decisions with fewer regrets. Emotions drive us. There's an elephant and there's a rider. And the elephant is the emotion. The elephant is what carries the rider. It's important. The elephant's strong and all this kind of stuff. But the rider is logical. The rider knows the path. The rider knows the way. The rider, which is the logic, should be guiding the emotion. But sometimes the elephant lays down in the middle of the path and sits there. And that's the emotion. And the rider... Is not going to be able to do anything to kick that elephant to get it to go. When the emotion takes control, there's no, there's, there's no more momentum. It's, we stop, and emotions are now in charge, and we all know what happens next. Typically, poor decisions. But emotion is can be channeled. Emotion is a good thing. Emotion gets us going, and, and we want to have some emotion when we make decisions, but we don't want to base our decisions on emotion. So there's a directive style, analytical style, and a behavioral style. I will gravitate towards one of these. And maybe you'll see yourself in one of them as well. So directive style prefers simple, clear-cut solutions to problems. Analytical style, based decisions on all available rational data. Conceptual style, use a broad amount of information to solve problems creatively. Then there's a behavioral style, exhibit a deep concern regarding effect of decisions on others. Which one are you? Who's a directive style, prefers simple, clear-cut solutions to problems? Who's analytical style, based decisions on all available rational data? So a little bit slower to make decisions, but you want to make sure you have all the information before you make it. So one, two, three, four, we got five. Whose conceptual style? Use a broad amount of information to solve problems creatively. I, I'm more conceptually oriented. I like creative problem solving. Behavioral style exhibit a deep concern regarding effect on other people. Yeah, so uh, a good example would be somebody asks you, where would you like to go eat? And you're like, I don't know. Where would you like to go eat?
1: <laughs> well,
0: I mean, I asked you, well, you know, I just want to make you happy. And, I, and it's whatever you want. So that's another being self-aware and knowing that there are times where it's best if I take the behavioral approach and I just say, you know what? You just make the decision. I, I want to do what's best for you. I'm willing to sacrifice whatever you want. But there's other ways where I need to make a directive approach. There is a building burning and I need to go help versus like, you know, I'm not sure, you know, what do you think I should do? Oh, okay. Well, how about you? You know, we don't have time to gather all this information. We just need to make a decision. So again, it goes back to this, Contingency theory of leadership is that we have to be we have to understand these styles, and we have to know what situation is is a situation where I need to have a behavioral style, more collective approach. I really do need to care about my staff and my team and what they think, even though I think something else. I want the best for them here. I want to use a behavioral style, directive style. Again, there's a financial decision that needs to be made. It's for the best interest of the profitability of the company. I'm going to make it. I'm not interested in how other people feel about it. So these are the biases that you'll hear a lot if you take psychology, but these, there's five of these, and these are fun to think about. I think you'll think about them more now that you define them, but an anchoring bias is when you first met me, you're anchoring all of your future thoughts and decisions based on your initial impression of So occurs when we allow initial impressions, statistics, and estimates to act as anchors to our subsequent thoughts and judgments. So when you first meet someone and you see that they're dressed nice and they have this beautiful suit, and they have a silver tongue and they can speak with eloquent words. You're just assuming that they're really nice to waitresses at restaurants. Then you see them be mean to somebody, and probably, go, I don't understand. Like that is conflicting. But we cannot always anchor our opinions of others and make decisions based on our initial impressions of something because it feels good or feels right. If we fall victim to that, we'll be falling victim to something called an anchoring bias. Loss aversion is what we experience and what we watch on the show. Deal or no deal? Stronger response to a potential loss than an expected gain. Remember the lady said that $170,000 is like three years worth of wages? I am so fixated on the fact that I won't get $170,000 that I don't even think about the fact that I could have $500,000 if we keep playing. Um, I just just don't want to lose. So I have a loss aversion so that I, I can't gain. So that's another buy. Stronger response to a potential loss an expected gain. Confirmation bias. This is something that I learned again in my doctoral degree, and they really they really want to make sure you do this when you write when you write scientific papers, when you make an assertion, political, religious, scientific, whatever it may be, what the confirmation bias says is it occurs when a manager puts too much value on evidence that is consistent with a favored belief or viewpoint and discounts evidence that contradicts it. So what we're doing is we're searching for things that prove our belief correct. So if I believe that my daughter is smart, I'm gonna look for all of the test grades that are A's, and I'm gonna ignore the C's and D's. I'm gonna gather all the A's and say, look how smart she is. But if the right way to do it, and to not fall victim to the confirmation bias, is to actually look, instead of looking for the A's, look for the bad grades and say, you know what, this could disprove my thought about her being smart. You're actually seeking out to disprove your initial hypothesis. In order to prove the fact that my daughter's smart, I'm looking for reasons why she's not smart. And if I can't find them, I must conclude that she's smart. But to not go and look for the things that disprove your assumption means you're falling victim to the confirmation bias. So that's, that's a big one, even just for your own personal development and thought and, relationship with other people. The scientific method, it debunks confirmation bias. So it's looking for evidence to disprove a theory. And if you can't find the evidence, then the theory must be true. It holds valid. Confirmation bias is a big deal. So if you're going to go about making a big decision in the next couple weeks, couple days, couple months, once you're a leader, here are some things you can use to make better decisions. Brainstorming, electronic brainstorming, evidence-based decision making. What's brainstorming? Get people together, have them come up with some ideas, solicit some opinions. The problem with brainstorming is that you fall victim to something called groupthink. It's good and bad to be a person at the box groupthink. So you're thinking about plans for this weekend, and you three are great friends, and you decide that you're going to go to the football game. And you want to know whether or not your friends want to go to the football game. And you say, hey, I just bought these tickets to the great football game over here. Would you like to come with me? And they like you, and they want to be friends with you, and they just agree that, yeah, let's go. That is sort of falling in line with the group or just saying yes to someone because you want them to like you. So when you have a group of people and you really want to know, is this a good decision, people cannot be afraid to say, no, I disagree. How would you feel if I told you I disagree that, you know, that shirt is, should be orange and it shouldn't be blue? If you had to make a decision on purchasing a 100 shirts just like that, saying, no, no, I think it should be blue, not orange. Or would you just, if all your friends say oh, orange is good, and you're really thinking in your mind, no, I think blue, but everybody else thinks orange, would you say, hey, no, 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 or would you just be quiet? The rest of the people said orange because you didn't say blue. So if she says, no, 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 blue, Three or four other people go, actually, you know what? I thought blue too, <laughs> because I was afraid to say it, but now that somebody said it, I'm okay with it. So this is the, this is the mental complexities of this group think concept. There was a, a study one time that they had people walk into an office with a person who was dressed like a doctor, and they administered shocks, which what they thought were shocks to a person in another room, and they heard these noises. The doctor would say, oh, press the button the button so I was like ah. and then every single time they turned the shock up the, the pressure of the shock press went ah to the point where at one point they thought they killed the person in the other room it was fake meaning they weren't actually administering shocks it was it was just a would they would they listen to the person in the suit and just do what they say because they had a position of authority and not stand up against them and the majority of the time people would go in and they would administer shocks that were like lethal shocks just because a person in a suit told them to. So it, it's, there's a different, uh, it's a different study that doesn't really talk about groupthink, but just think about people's reluctance to disagree with orders. People's reluctance to say, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Even in our society, at one point in time, we thought slavery was a good thing until somebody stood up and said, no, 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 not a good thing. And think about Martin Luther King what he did to eradicate racism in our nation. At a certain point in time, the signs about, you know, colored people not allowed in a restaurant, people, oh, that's just how we do it. No, this is group thing. The collective majority a lot of times tends to go towards, you know, we need individuals to stand up and say something. And that's what the devil's advocate is. And I know that some of this stuff you go home and share with your friends and family, and it changes the way that you behave, not just in business, but in your life as well. And being aware, the biggest thing is, I want, I hope that you can, based on this information, that you're more aware of the fact that the decision's being made and some of the biases that come into play when you go to make a decision. Mm -hmm. And also the process that we should use when we make important decisions.